Welcome to the Friday Workplace Briefing. Workplace law changes so quickly. Tune in weekly to find out how the law is changing and what you need to do. Your hosts are Andrew Douglas, Managing Principal, FCW Lawyers, and Karen Liu, Principal Consultant, Sound Consulting. G'day, Karen. How are you? Good to see you. Good to see you back after being a crook. Thank you. Good to be back. Good to have a voice No, again. no horse in the voice. It's good. Well, yes, well, that's pretty much resolved itself. So, no, it's great to be here. And I think uh, thanks again to Nina last week. You did a stellar job covering me. I know. And look, today, if you looked at my Facebook, which is actually named after my dog, you'd think it's my birthday, but it's actually my dog's birthday. So, for all those people who've sent me happy birthday, it's my dog. Okay. <laughs> well, that's the April Fool's <laughs> That was the April Fool, wasn't it? Because it yeah. is the day. Yes, it? It, it is. It is the day. We've got some, talking about April Fool's, we Pretty sure when our federal election is on the 14th of May. Mm-hmm. You've probably heard industry groups starting to lobby around industrial relations. And I guess the first thing I'll say about that, there will be nothing in the federal election about industrial relations because it is a touchstone for both parties in mm-hmm. alienating the votes thereafter. And you notice they both rolled over and said nothing about it. Yeah. So there'll be jokes about fairness and a few other pushing and shoving, but I can almost promise you there'll be nothing in industrial relations. We've seen um, the federal government fly a bit of a kite around redundancy where it's said in the budget papers they're looking at recalculating it as a bit of pitch to women based on average hours. Unfortunately, it wasn't very smart because when you look at average hours, it actually disadvantages mums with um, home responsibilities. So it's not a particularly clever thing and will disappear into the ether as well when that analysis is done. So I think what we can say is everything will be the same on 15 May. Nothing will change. So that's our bit of political commentary. Let's just jump into some cases today because there are some, some really interesting cases. I think the one of Cummins against RAR, uh, Cummins and RAR is the Canberra Hospital fatality that happened about three or four years ago. So it's had Multiplex as the principal contractor. They've been fined $150,000. I think it was last year they pleaded guilty. Watts, who was the driver of the, the crane that caused the death of the person, he got a 12-month suspended sentence because he was charged with reckless endangerment. Mm-hmm. Very, very fortunate. And I'll talk more. Nina's done some analysis and reading some cases as well to help us on this. But what happened is the crane company had just recently pleaded guilty, so it's the last person in this chain. And they've been fined $300,000 what's a level two offence, which is a primary duty breach. What we're seeing across the country is a reduction in fines and safety. Mm-hmm. And that's partly because safety has been removed away from specialist tribunals who became very keen to increase the level of penalties back to district county court judges who are going, this doesn't pass the stiff test. So what we've seen over the last two years is a gradual reduction in fines. That's probably where they're going to be. RAR, in this case, who is the contractor, the crane contractor themselves, and I'll talk about what they did in a second, in Victoria two years ago would have had a $500,000 to $600,000 fine. Without a doubt, without a doubt, they would have had that size of fine because they allowed Watts to drive a crane when the alarms were sounding and he was carrying stuff beyond the load. They had an unsafe road that he was riding on and they had no site, he had no site-specific training and there was no site assessment mm-hmm. correctly done. I mean, you can't be worse than that as a primary duty and they end up with a $300,000 fine. Like, anyway, that's where it's changed to. Yeah. I think the thing, the key takeaway for me here, Andrew, is that around the site specificness of, um, in terms of risk assessments and controls, when it comes to anything, any higher risk type of work, 
that needs to be conducted. And so it's a generalised or one that's done before that applies to multiple sites that you might work at just doesn't cut it. No. And the other part is if a crane has a warning system that tells you not to lift something well, it's and, like the alarm, yeah, and, yeah, like, and yeah. the alarm goes off, you sort of stop what you're doing. Oh, you don't awesome. go, I'll drive a kilometre up an unsafe road. Mobile plant is the greatest focus of all regulators and we see it all the time. Yeah. So I think both your and my view is this, check the mobile plant to make sure it's fit for purpose and what its rules, rules are around use. Ensure the person who's using it is competent. In this case, multiplex gave directions which shouldn't have been followed. Okay, don't do that. You do your assessment, you determine what is safe to do and you follow it and you work within the confines of the mobile plant that you've got. So this is a case which in some ways is hard to believe it happened because, mm-hmm. because the confluence of so many errors come, come together. But it just shows this is on a multiplex side who are very good with safety. You would never have expected it to occur and if it happens on those sort of sites, then it's pretty clear it happens everywhere. Mm-hmm. So every day with safety, you step up and do the right thing. Don't become complacent, I think, is the answer. Yeah. Next case is Matthews and Qantas Airways. Last week we talked to you about Brigginshaw, and that's the, the test you use in determining how to find facts, which is on the balance of probabilities and based on the serious nature of it, the more satisfied you have to be of the quality of the evidence. And more serious is crime serious, not other type of serious. So it's stealing assault, whatever it is. You have to have a higher level of satisfaction around the quality of evidence. In Matthew's case, Matthews was terminated, summarily terminated, and he was running a health first aid type course, Mm -hmm. and a woman formed the view that he was staring at her and then staring at her chest, and they found that was sexualised nature and terminated him. Now, remember what I said last week (laughs) about actually looking at the objective evidence rather than the subjective interpretation. The deputy president, when they're looking at it, I mean, must have been chuckling because what he did was completely in line with the slides of you look in someone's eyes to see if there's a problem. Mm-hmm. You look at their chest and their brushes. <laughs> and this woman's gone, oh, my God, he's being sexual. She could look at the slides would be a start. <laughs> she was being taught to actually assess for health. Yeah. That aside, no doubt she was quite distressed by it. But the investigation for such a large organisation you could smell the conclusion of being formed before they even started. Mm-hmm. They listened to what she said. They were affected by the subjective description of what occurred. Had they just sat down with the slides of the presentation, what she said, they would have gone, hmm, he's teaching her to assess. Yeah. But I think you've got a view on this, haven't you, about I people who are, who are difficult people? Well, look, a couple of things. One, I guess when organisations really want to make a point of uh, principle and doing the right thing, in this case, if sexual harassment or inappropriate behaviour is something that we don't tolerate and we treat very seriously, which is well and good, that doesn't do away with the need for uh, process and due process and um, procedural fairness and um, the need for proper investigations, Andrew. So I think that's where we've seen, um, in terms of this case, fall over a bit. The other thing is also where this could be dangerous is if you've got an employee who's allegedly um, done something wrong um, or got themselves in trouble, if that person is unpopular, if that person is disliked or you've already formed a view about them even before anything happened, there is an even greater need for you to be really, really strong with your investigation and thorough with it. It's so, elusive, doesn't it? I completely. Uh, those, those sort of perceptions, you go, yeah, that's what he would do, you know, yeah, exactly. and it's there, it's front of mind. And then suddenly this is whirlwind investigation and then there's suddenly someone summarily terminated. Now, that may be the right outcome because, you know, the findings of the investigation 
make very clear that um, the wrong thing had occurred and it was the appropriate outcome. But in absence of that, Andrew, yeah. why not be? But look, Karen, I think we're going to talk about a bit later about what you do. We'll talk about brig insurance, what is the test. Uh, but the most important thing in an investigation is to look at what the allegation is, find the source of law in your organisation, you know, go to your policies, your procedures, your code and say, look, this is where it could be a breach. Mm-hmm. You know, check and see, for instance, does anyone know those policies exist because you can't use them if they don't? That's actually a really good question. <laughs> <laughs> and remember, if it's not there, it doesn't mean it's not a breach of law. But then you actually plan your investigation. Yep to get rid of the premeditation, to clean it from your mind and go, so this is what I have to do and this is how I'm going to do it. So we'll talk about that a little bit more in a second. We've got another sexual harassment case of Ranmin Kerr, which is the first hearing of the new anti-sexual harassment divisions of the Fair Work Act. Now, you remember that the federal government received a report where they got 56 things they did and they chose four. This is one of the stupid things they chose to do is to set up, like the anti-bullying jurisdiction, another jurisdiction that nobody will use. And once again, just like the anti-bullying jurisdiction, no one's using it because by the time someone brings an order to stop, they've left the organisation because they've been so damaged and therefore it has no jurisdiction, okay? So this is a dumb jurisdiction and when we talk about this case, you go, what stops an organisation from permitting something? Well, not this jurisdiction is the short answer. So this was a person who unquestionably was sexually harassed by she was a chef or a kitchen hand, depending on who believes what's said, where the chef came and picked her up from, from home. Mm-hmm. She actually recorded some of the commentary that he made in a solicitous way so he didn't see it or see she was doing it, but it was clearly asking for sex, asking for a relationship three different incidents that occurred. So let's be clear, it was unwanted and unwelcome sexual attention. So it's clearly sexual discrimination. But it was so damaging, she left. So she brought the application and the Fair Work Commission said, look, there's no doubt this is sexual harassment, even though it happened outside of work. One was in a car park and lunch break. Mm -hmm. One was picking her up to take her to work and one was him ringing about work Mm -hmm. when she was in bed. And they said, look, it's work. For the purpose of this, this is a communication by someone in, about work to a work colleague. It's work. That's a really interesting part of this case because what it does is dramatically extend the breadth of what is work in the mind of the Fair Work Commission. Yeah, and particularly because he was senior to her. Yeah. Yeah, she did. There was that disparity in the imbalance in terms of power. Yeah. So. But they then said, but we don't have any jurisdiction because she slept. Mm-hmm. Now, there you go. What a terrific jurisdiction. And the funny part is, and the new psychosocial regs, there is no doubt that this is a specific breach of the regs. It's a specific breach of primary duty of not providing a safe place of work, and it is a specific breach by the head chef of their duty to exercise reasonable care not to injure another person. You see, sexual harassment, because it's something mostly about women, people like to keep it nice and discreet and can't do much about it. You've got to bring an action, whereas the answer under the new regs in Victoria will be once she makes a complaint, they will have to share that complaint with WorkSafe because they have to disclose the incident. Well, it's going to be a bit of a changer, isn't it? Wouldn't it be nice if women who were in these circumstances who weren't being satisfied by the way work were managing it and before their two damage rang WorkSafe or the safety regulator who came and intervened? Yeah. Then two things would happen. The women would still be at work and safe at work and secondly, the organisation the people involved would be in trouble. Oh, absolutely. And that's really where we've got to get with this stuff. We can't just pretend that sexual harassment is something that sits on the outside. It is like any other type of thing, anything that creates a risk to someone's health, 
a risk to their personal integrity, it's a breach of safety law. Yeah, which means that there's urgency around that. We need to treat it with the same urgency and the way that um, in terms of capturing incidents and reporting hazards, we need to normalise it and put it as part of that, treat it as the same category of, um, of hazard or risk. Yeah. You know? At the moment it's being left the case where that, that damaged person has to make a complaint to seek some sort of award or compensation, but that doesn't heal their health. Yeah. We need to stop it and the stop jurisdiction does not and will not work and people will not use it. We really should be using regulators. Anyway, yeah. that's my brief rant today and that's probably my last rant because we're going to go back into investigations, which is not so exciting. <laughs> so in workplace investigations, Karen and I, again, spoke about Brigginshaw last week so people are clear what you've got to find. I'll let Karen take over in a minute. I just I want to be clear where we see the gaps coming to us. Mm-hmm. And these are the three that hit us every time. The first one is nobody stops, plans and breathes. And so regularly we don't have the right witnesses and the right real evidence and things like the slides in the earlier case I gave you. People just go and talk to people and they take notes and they make a decision and it's all rushed because everyone's really excited by it, everyone's trying to fix something very quickly rather than going, what am I trying to do here? So that's the first thing and it shows all the way through the investigation and it makes the investigation invalid. The second thing is the pension of many people to actually find a legal concept like there was sexual harassment or there was bullying. Anything less than that's still misconduct. But if your policies describe your decision point at when that occurs, they are bad policies because all of that before, me being rude to someone, me making a sexual comment which isn't quite sexual harassment, but it's still misconduct. Mm -hmm. So the finding that a layperson should make, not a lawyer, should not be a legal concept and it shouldn't be part of your policy to find a legal concept. That's really why you hire lawyers. Your job is to find the misconduct and that is a factual thing that says a person did this to this person. That's what it is. So that's the second thing that almost always goes wrong. And the third one is the findings are never accurate to the facts. So you read through, there will almost be no description of the competing evidence. There'll be no explanation of how you exercise Brigginshaw, why you found the evidence was sufficient. Mm-hmm. And then all you'll find is this very brief statement, the allegations were proved. And you'll mm-hmm. go, which part of what allegation was proved? So exercise in detail. I'll hand you over for your slide because I think you deal with that more accurately than me. Yeah, sure. Over to you, Karen. Excellent. Okay, so with investigation findings, a couple of things for you all here to take away around do's and don'ts. Andrew spoke earlier about being really clear on on the allegations and the issues and what exactly is it that you're required to make a finding on. Too often an incident occurs, we need to investigate it, we'll investigate it. What are we investigating exactly? So that's key. Remember, that should be an allegations letter. So you should actually draft a letter. Don't, Don't do this orally. Give something that people can properly respond to. That's why you need lawyers. Understand the applicable rules and laws and policies or the standards that apply relevant to what it is that you're trying to establish or make a finding on. With that, in terms of collecting the details and the information, stick to the facts of the incident or the issue. All right, we're not here to take, you will as part of that investigation process, take on opinions, anecdotal statements, a whole bunch of things. But the fact of the matter is what you need to understand, where is the evidence? you need to be able to back that up. And if there is no evidence, you're going to form a finding as well, which is no finding. And can I just say, there's two statements that the alarm bell should go off. I believe this, Mm -hmm. or I feel he or she was doing this, 
that's impressionistic rubbish. Mm -hmm. When someone says that and they say you believe so, well, let's not talk about what you believe. What is it you saw? Mm -hmm. What is it you heard? Mm -hmm. Remember, what Karen's saying is drill back to the fact, not the impressionistic stuff, because it's the impressionistic stuff, which you're not allowed to rely on at all. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's quite binary. Yeah. (laughs) All right, so we've got here making a statement on whether a finding could be made on the allegation or the issue. If a finding can be made, you will say that. If there is insufficient information for you to be able to arrive at a, you know, to make a finding, you will need to also make that clear that there is there is no information or insufficient information there, rather than it didn't happen because we don't know that. And I should say, when you're making a finding of dishonesty, shame true energy is the case on it. You must be overwhelmingly satisfied of dishonesty, and particularly where you say it's been done for an improper purpose, that's serious misconduct. So when you find that. That's summary termination. Yep. So I'm urging you to be cautious to be right, not to be cautious for the sake of being cautious. Mm-hmm. But you must, when you say Karen did this so she get out of performance management, you want to have something very specific that tells you that, mm-hmm. not just the impression, I think that's why Karen was doing it. That is not a basis for forming a view on dishonesty. Yep. In terms of writing up your your findings as well, making sure that you use very clear language, um, construct really succinct sentences, but using very objective impartial language. A couple of things you don't do, obviously, don't rely on unreliable evidence. That is information that is firstly untrue, but also can't can't be validated. Making generalised statements, subjective statements, putting your opinion, whether that might even just creep in there, Andrew, in terms of... So the the classic one in bullying is this person has repeatedly done this behaviour over two years. Mm. Well, unless you're going to identify the days and what occurred, don't say it. Mm -hmm. You can say, and the examples of these are... But far too often reports we say, look, this person just repeatedly does this. Mm-hmm. And you go, does what? When? Who? And they've yeah. got to be able to respond to it. It's very word triggering. Like, you know, they, we're very literal with this in terms of the words we use here. Um, so be very, very careful with that. Predicting, inferring and making a judgment is a big no-no. Veering outside the scope of the investigation as well. This is why we go back to the point of what is it that we're investigating? Because there will probably be a whole bunch of interesting things that come out as part of the investigation, which is all. Oh, but don't be distracted by that. Okay, you can make a you can record that, but that's not relevant to of you making the finding. Don't make any suggest any advice or in terms of provide suggestions or advice on how to manage the situation. Now that you've got you've made the finding, that's not your role as the investigator. And uh, don't make legal determinations, which is a really big one for you. Yeah, it is a big one for me. All right, well, look, that's great, Karen. And I think it's probably time for me to provide you with the thing you love most, which is the case study. Oh well. Okay. So we'll go with the case study and you'll know how to use Slido by now. So we'll, when we come to ask the questions, we'll put up Slido and give you a minute's thinking time, but off to you now. Okay, thank you. Marinda was a junior accountant at Manum, Andrews and Nichols Accountants, Man, a boutique College Street tax accounting practice. Manager Neville. That wasn't the hard word. Oh, no. please. I think I just did it just to keep you, get you laughing, right? By the way, it's Mannheim. Mannheim. Yeah, okay. just helping you out. Thanks, Andrew. So generous. Anyway, his, her manager, Neville, was seen as a friendly, easygoing manager by the three partners of the firm. The women in the office did not see it the same way. They thought he was sleazy, crossed boundaries, but no one made a formal complaint. Jeff Andrews, the managing partner, had been told as much, as much on several occasions by his PA, Meredith. Marinda felt that Neville had crossed the line with her on several occasions. During a lunch hour, Neville, two other employees and Marinda had gone for a rice paper roll at Rold. He purchased the food, later seeking reimbursement from man, and while serving plates of rolls, touched Marinda's shoulder twice, the second time lingering for more than 10 seconds. 
A week later, he saw Marinda walking to work and joined her. Neville commented on how beautiful her summer dress was and laughed when he said, very revealing. <laughs> it was the top that she wore to get to work, uh, not her more conservative clothes she wore at work. When he made the comments, he looked straight at her chest, holding his look for more than a few seconds. She told Meredith what happened when she got to work. Meredith immediately told Jeff, who slapped the desk and said, what's wrong with that boy? He then returned to his work without doing anything about it. Meredith, now angry and indignant at her boss's inaction, stormed over to Neville and said, stop being a perv at the top of her voice. Well, that wasn't quite at the top of my voice. No, that wasn't quite. Now, you don't have much of a voice. No, Marinda felt sad, distressed and unsafe. Neville had previously made numerous sexualised jokes in front of her but not directed at her. This was the last straw. She left the office disoriented and when running across the road in a haze of anxiety, was struck by a car and severely injured. She resigned from man when she was in hospital and shortly after made a stop sexual harassment application. An investigation by HR to what happened spoke only to Marinda and Neville and concluded that each action of Neville's was sexual harassment and he was summarily dismissed. So here we go. Now, this is how you join Slido. We're going to give you 60 seconds. I'm watching on the clock here so that you can join and then start answering the questions. And after that, 60 seconds, so start doing it now. There, there's the clock. It's up and running. Mm-hmm. After that, I'll take you through the answers up. Neville's not a great creature, is he, in this? You're not giving anything away. I'm not giving anything away. Uh, Jeff's not a great creature either. What do you think of Meredith? No judgment. <laughs> oh, God, you're boring today. When you're sick, you're boring. Oh, thanks. Well, <laughs> that's okay. We need to fire up. We're, here to, we're advocates here today. Yeah, I don't know, but you know, the whole idea is let people let the people speak and form their opinions. And Just trying to give them some hints, that's well. I know. I think people will work it out. They mostly get it right. Well, let's go. All right. Well, the first question is: Could Marinda successfully bring a stop sexual harassment application? The answer is a resounding no. She's no longer working, so it has no jurisdiction. So that was a quick one, wasn't it? Could Neville successfully contest his dismissal? In other words, was the nature of the investigation so poor? that he would have a basis of saying, look, this wasn't valid. So that's what happened in the case we talked about. They said, look, when you look at this, there's not a valid reason because the investigation was so poorly done that it was looking at subjective elements that it said, no, I'm not going to proceed with it. But here there is a valid reason, okay, because the conduct on any basis, on any basis at all, is sexual harassment. So this isn't something where you put the slides next to them and go, oh, that's what they're doing. Mm-hmm. This is So there's a valid reason. It doesn't mean you get up and win, but it means there's a valid reason. So Neville's not going to be able to succeed on that basis. What he could say is, remember, unreasonable? Well, if the finding is that he did it, it's going to be reasonable because punishment fits the crime. Okay, is it harsh? We don't know a lot of his past experience, but it's probably not harsh. The question is, is it just? And just means when I look at how it was lawfully executed, was it lawfully executed correctly? Mm -hmm. Okay, so Neville does have an argument around whether it was just in that going to only two people in the circumstances was pretty risky because it risks looking at a subjective description of what occurred. But the answer here is he would have no success at all because as the issues were agitated in the trial, those other witnesses would definitely have been there and they would have definitely said what had occurred and who he was. So I think he has almost no chance of turning around his dismissal. That just shows you that you can muck up an investigation at times and still get away from it. Yeah, but it would have been much more helpful if they'd done the investigation properly. Well, you wouldn't have ended up in a hearing because he certainly, if he'd gone to a plaintiff's lawyer, 
would have brought a claim yeah. and they certainly would have run as far as they could and somebody would have paid him out mm-hmm. to try and avoid it. About 2% of unfair dismissal cases go to hearing. So that means, if you look at the facts of them, even ones where there's a bit of an argument, they're going to get money to go away. Now, the, the last question is the one we're really talking about today was the organisation and Jeff, and Jeff was the managing partner, was Jeff liable under safety law? Well, imagine what happened if she had have died. So instead of being severely injured, she had died. Do we have a breach of duty under industrial manslaughter? We do. By the way, industrial manslaughter has just started in Western Australia, along with the Western Australian legislation all came through in the last week. So was there a general duty? Yes. Did he know the types of risks that existed? Yeah, he'd been told on numerous occasions. He'd done nothing about it. He was told when it did happen again, did nothing about it, pretty close to sort of gross negligence sort of test, and a person died, that's industrial manslaughter. So I raise that because even though it happened out of work, even though she was injured outside of work, industrial manslaughter reaches out of the workplace. It certainly is a primary duty breach, absolutely no doubt at all. Jeff is certainly, for the purpose of this, an officer within the organisation. In Victoria, he knew of risk and did nothing about it, personally liable. In every other jurisdiction, it's an objective test, so he was liable. So the answer is, Yes, both the organisation and Jeff would be liable under safety law. And I just think this is such an important concept to take in. Mm-hmm. Okay. The question that's not here is was the conduct in its nature sexual harassment, which is an unwelcome sexual advance? I don't think there's any doubt at all. And was it in work for the purpose of sexual harassment, if you bring a sexual harassment claim? So if she brought that claim herself rather than a stop order, would she succeed? The answer is the Fair Work Commission make it very clear where this conduct happened at a lunchtime, mm-hmm. on the way to work, all are workplaces for the purpose of discrimination and the Fair Work Act. And the thing to remember about that is this is beneficial legislation designed to protect employees. So those boundaries are going to be extended all the time. Now, when you look at Jeff, he might have an argument it's not at work because it's been to protect him as well as an employee. So isn't it funny how a court could have two different perceptions based on who it is? And we've seen cases like Canaan where they've said going to a non-planned after party directly above a party before, which is Canaan and Layden's case, the party we had slightly afterwards, even though the HR manager was at that party and even though he sexually harassed the HR manager, it was found not to be work. So it is a curiosity of our legislation that it is for them. So weird outcome, but I just wanted to remind people Think very carefully about how you apply the law and always look through the lens of the legislation is there to protect the employee, good or bad, yep. protect them. Yeah, and practically, Andrew, on that, what I want you to take away from this, uh, from that case is sexual harassment, employment, safety, clothes, like interconnectedness, and um, you can't separate them. And look, with the new psychosocial code that exists in New South Wales, which is evidence of reasonable practicability, the regulations here which set up specific positive obligations in Victoria, what I want you to understand is this thing of having three or four separate practitioners, one in workers' compensation, one in safety, one in HR, all yep. comes together because safety is the dominant yep. workplace thing that says when you come to work, no matter what it is, when you come to work, you must be safe. Yep. And if you're not, and it's a psychosocial hazard, sexual harassment is a psychosocial hazard, there is a positive duty in Victoria to stop it and there is a primary duty everywhere else in Australia to stop it Mm -hmm. and that should be in all your policies.
you should be identifying the fact that this is a safety issue. Our staff must be safe. Yeah. Okay, guys, that's it for today. Thank you very much. I look a bit tired, don't I? Yeah, I'm getting older. This is not a generous screen. <laughs> All right, see you later, guys, and thank Bye. you very much, Sally and Carla.